and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership. I'm delighted to have Andy Milburn with me. Uh, Andy and I have had some fascinating conversations already in in our warm-up conversation a couple of days ago and now. But what a life this man has lived in the short space of time that he's been on the planet. 31 years in the U.S. Marines, um, born with uh, an American mother, uh, but born in in England, uh, then decided to go and join as an infantry soldier in the U.S. Marines, which is so tough, and then got his way through um, in a whole range of sort of special forces operations and became the former deputy commander special operations um, for an organization called Soxent. Uh, long, uh, unpronounceable American abbreviations, as bad as the Brits. Um, But the book I uh, love listening to, which I do commend to you all, is When the Tempest Gathers, which is Andy's story of all these different parts of the world he's been in. And these hairy scraps and fights and fighting ISIS uh, and leading Iraqi soldiers to defeat them as we saw them diminish their little circle of operations until they disappear completely but somebody had to do that and it was andy and his colleagues that was doing that phenomenal operation without further ado andy welcome great having you on the show hey jonathan thanks so much for bringing me on yeah well no it's great company i've been listening to i mean watching back episodes and uh very uh i'm very impressed by the company i am and, and privileged to be here thank you yeah well thanks and we also uh, thanks to a lovely guy called mark uh zinner and Mark uh, is uh, in an organization called Enact, which is a mortgage insurance company. Uh, he's the chief of staff there. And he said, hey, the guy you got to have on is Colonel Andy Milburn. Really great uh, Marine with a hell of a story to tell. So, guys, uh, read, undoubtedly read the book. But, um, Andy, you and I were talking about good leaders and that kind of stuff. Is there a couple of leaders that you've come across that you want to call out? And, and what are the qualities that you value in them? Yeah, great, uh, great, great question, Jonathan. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually prepared for that, which is a good thing because I've run across huge number of, uh, of, of really good leaders. By the way, I and I, I'm sure we'll get onto the topic of bad leaders, but I got to tell you, <laughs> I've learned as much, and I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of you, you'll agree with me. I've learned as much, if not more, from uh, bad leaders in my life. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to start on a negative point, but. You, you know, invariably, as a military officer, uh, you come across units or people who are um, just in a dire state because they have someone uh, who seems just unworkable for yeah. right over a period of uh, two years and you're trapped into that. And I tell them, look, this too will pass, uh, but you will emerge as a, as a better leader yourself if you pay attention to those lessons. So now having started off on a dark point, I, I would say... Um, Yes, so many, but I I would narrow. Uh, you know, number one, I think uh, certainly in my my experience, and and he continues to be a mentor. Um, General uh, Joseph Votel. I know you had Admiral McRaven on. Um, General Votel kind of 
I'm not sure he'll appreciate me saying this, but part, but but uh, followed in the footsteps of Admiral McCraven, he commanded and and went further, even further. I mean, he commanded uh, Joint Special Operations Command, which, as you know, is our premier sort of tier one uh, soft organization. Went on to command SOCOM, Special Operations Command here, uh, and then and then CENTCOM, Central Command, which is. An extraordinary three three uh, series of commands, but that's not the reason why I've nom- nominated him. Um, you know, we can talk about a little bit uh, during this discussion about how his personal intervention um, really changed, certainly uh, changed my life and or, or kept it on trajectory. Um, but I tell you what, what it really, you know, you'll see in my uh, or or from my discussion with you earlier. Uh, you'll remember that self-reflection, I think, is one of the most valuable components of uh, of leadership. The ability to really examine yourself, um, try and look at yourself uh, from the viewpoint of subordinates, and uh, and constantly be thinking um, and being honest with yourself. And that mm-hmm. that may seem a very facile thing to say, but it's actually not that common. Um, General Votel despite the fact that he's gone from kind of viceroy position to viceroy position in our military. And anyone who's been in the U.S. military knows the kind of the exalted status that a four-star has. Well, General Votel went through all of those, you know, three four-star billets in a row um, and remained a very grounded leader. Um, You know, just a few things just that I'll throw out, and they're not so much traits, but just observations. Um, he, He... Every conversation that he had uh, was intentional. You know, there was no kind of this hill fellow, well met, um, you know, where are you from, son, blah, blah, blah. Uh, It it was all, he he really enjoyed talking to all ranks, uh, but there was intention to it. You know, he he asked open-ended questions. He really wanted to find things out and uh find and and uh, understand your thoughts uh on things and that and and reflected on them um he was a leader that uh when when he came to visit you in the field and you brought something up you could guarantee that he would pursue it um and uh but most of all it was his intellect and mm. uh and and you, you and I both know that as much as we as much as you may joke about our profession uh, not typically being uh, the one that harbors high intellect, um, intellect is n- it's nevertheless you you've got to be you've got to be bright in 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 many ways. Um, I mean, those, you've got to intellect is a important component of uh, leadership. And uh, General Votel, despite his kind of knuckle dragging past, I mean, he was a legitimate. A member of Delta Force, he passed all the qualifications. Former Ranger Commander, uh, you know, I mean, he is he is kind of the quintessential in in our military uh, knuckle dragger in, in that sense, door kicker, <laughs> uh, and yet a tremendous intellect. You know, to mm-hmm. listen to him talk, he really reflects on things. He he has given uh, a, the best discussion, the best talk yet on risk on on uh, managing risk uh, a leader's role and managing risk up and down communication of risk all of these things i've i've learned uh, just by listening to general votel and, and this is really interesting while we're we're on that topic of such an incredible guy as general joseph votel uh, you you gave a bit of a teaser in saying that you know he he he's a mentor to you even now which is which is very special but 
give give an example of one thing he did that made a difference to your career and your life. Yes, yeah, certainly. I, and you know, without uh, without jumping ahead, but I I went through a a personal tragedy. Uh, but it, do, it do you want to do you want to say what the tragedy was? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I I lost my daughter in a uh, in a traffic accident, and um, so sorry, so sorry. Or, you know, obviously, uh, uh, the most catastrophic experience I've had in my life. And it occurred uh, three months before I was due to deploy to Iraq. And the deployment was a very high visibility, very important deployment. It was the first time that a Marine had had headed up a um, combined joint special operations task force in, in, in the U.S., vernacular first of all there has to be a handy acronym cj sodif uh and and secondly that the cj sodif is a an 06 a colonel's command so this was the first time that it that a marine colonel was going to command a cj sodif and that a marine uh, marine special operations unit was going to form the backbone of that organization big mission we had six subordinate task forces uh beneath us from um uh, you know, various coalition task forces, not even all of them. NATO, we had a Swedish task force too, uh, plus a SEAL battalion and a Marine um, battalion, Special Operations Battalion. Wow. So huge fears. Uh, the the Islamic State was 30 miles from Baghdad. This was end of 2015. It was a dire time. And this Siege of would represent uh, the, the only U.S. or the only coalition special operations forces in Iraq. And so tremendous responsibility. Uh, I had gone through, you know, I, I had put together with my staff the Siege of and and gone through the training. And then three months uh, before we do deploy, right before our final exercise, uh, I, I lost Kayla. And was in a dark, dark place. You know, I returned to the unit to go through the final exercise. And uh, before the exercise, right in on day one, this is in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Day one, uh, I, I heard that General Votel was visiting. Well, that wasn't, you know, I'm not saying he came to Fort Bragg because of me, but he made a, uh, he, you know, he's done in, in Tampa at the time, but he certainly came to that, the exercise. Um to to see me, uh, you know, he walked in, and you know how everything everyone kind of genuflux here in front of a four star. And, um, General Votel had a pretty small entourage, but nevertheless, it's a huge deal. Um, everyone's there from the base commander, blah blah blah, in this massive auditorium, and uh, he receives a brief on the give him a brief on the siege of Sodif, and then he just says, "I'd like everyone to uh, leave the room, please." <laughs> everyone. Except for uh, for you know Colonel Milburn, and so everyone filed out. And he just said, "Hey, sit down." And um, you know, I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said, "But he said, look, Andy, you've you know you've already put in 30 years for your country. You've you've done these things. No one's going to think the worst of you if you step down from this deployment. Least of all me. And I I promise you, you you're not going to get pushed into. And he didn't say this, but some kind of shitty billet." Um, you you know we'll 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 take care of you is what he said Uh, and we'll find someone else and um, uh, you know that that kind of gut punched me that he at that time with all this stuff coming on he he had said this or that he'd even you know he he'd heard about the tragedy and he'd send me a a note and uh, he said you know I'll give you I'll give you 20 minutes to think about it whatever Um, I'll tell no one else to come in to bother you and you can 
think about it and uh and just just wow. let know. and no harm no foul either way well you know i decided in the end to leave the siege just sort of perhaps more about that later um it, it wasn't an entirely selfish uh decision uh, my my wife at the time was not kayla's mother so you know it would have been different if i was leaving a grieving uh mother at at home but um uh, I in and frankly the rest of it was selfish because I just couldn't imagine remaining behind and mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't imagine what how I would deal with this grief at least deploying with a mission uh, I I felt I could at least hold on to that as an anchor yeah um, and so I went ahead and, and told him and um, mm-hmm. you know throughout the rest of my deployment and, and it was a hard time for a lot of reasons uh, there were uh, it was a very uh, fractious chain of command, you know, when you mix conventional and special operations forces. And mm-hmm. um, and, and he remained in, in personal contact uh, uh, throughout. And I always knew um, that if something that I needed his help, I could reach out, despite the fact he was several levels up in the chain of command. And General Votel would have managed that uh, very well, you know, without making commanders in between felders. So they've been bypassed. He was just a, just a terrific leader. And, yeah. um, you know, you, I, I, I think I, I can't speak for others, but I, you know, my, my impression of him very much replicated throughout the force. When, when he came to visit a unit, uh, it wasn't like, Oh man, you know, bring out the paint. Uh, it, it was, Hey, we better be on our game because we know we're going to get some really good hard questions he never but he never embarrassed people never saw him lose his temper um yeah anyway i would stop there otherwise no, he's no uh, 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 but it, listening to that i mean firstly the, the tragedy that you went through and it, and it really was a gut punch just in listening to it when you lost kayla and she was killed in that traffic accident um and and then that decision about what you had to do and to try and keep your mind focused on what you're doing at the same time, while as also grieving and dealing with your ex-wife uh, who um, was also coming to terms with what was going on. And then, you know, this really big um, historic occasion when the, 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 uh, the U S Marines get this, this front seat row um, in a, a battle, which is historic. Uh, you, you know, you have actually you've been part of something which is historic. It's recorded in all the records of what went on with ISIS so close to Baghdad and then how it was destroyed um, by that force. And and also um, just the quality of the man in Joseph Fertel, who led by example, but really cared. I think I, I see and you and I were talking earlier about toxic higher ranks and and the bad ones and i've served with one or two are very self-serving and have huge egos or they're on the narcissistic personality disorder along no no way those exist in the british <clears throat> army uh, so, yeah sadly they do just as much as they do in yours and then we have the politicians that uh on both sides of the atlantic and in other countries uh it seems to be at the moment there's a tendency for the the sort of um populist leader who will say anything to get into power so so to have someone like that was quite special who was your your second i mean it's hard to follow that one but who who would be another one that you'd mention uh, yeah i, I you know after? and actually the the other guy never got beyond major and um 
uh, it's sadly he was killed in in Afghanistan at the rank of major. But but you would never, you know, if you look at his resume, his military resume, you would, you, you know, you would uh, you would probably d- dismiss him as someone who who uh, uh, had had always looked for really exciting billets and never really focused on his career. He was a fifty one year old major um, when when uh, when he died. Um, on, but hands down, and he wasn't even a Marine. I say he wasn't even a Marine because, you, you know, there's there's an undercurrent here within Marine ethos that, uh, you know, there are these other services, but if you have to work with them, that's kind of a Marine Corps appreciation tool, we call it, because, um, you know, that that sounds quite arrogant, but there's, there are certain things that, that the Marine Corps subliminally really thinks that uh, – that uh, we we do like no other organization. One of which is is leadership, um, how we train you know our officers. And of course, the British Army feels the same way. Any good organization does. Um, this guy Rocco, his name is Rocco. Yeah, I, I remember you talking about uh, Rocco throughout. The yeah, book. he he uh, uh, he was not a, a marine. He was an Army National Guard guy. Uh, spe- you know, he's special forces. Uh, but I was just I, I served Rocco uh, in a tour. Uh, for a tour in Mosul during a very bad period. He was the team leader. I was his deputy. Um, and I would never, although we were equal rank, I, I, he was definitely the team leader because, and he never had to emphasize that or remind me of that. It simply was, you know, I, I sought his advice. I learned so much from him. Uh, you know, a lot. I mean, Jonathan, if I, I, I don't want to just go through uh, a whole a list that sounds like me just listing leadership principles, but well, the one thing I got from him, same thing I actually from General Votel, was this just ability to remain calm no matter what, uh, or project calmness, and, and through even the most dire uh, circumstances. And and I can think of several, and they're in my book, um, where you know I felt my heart uh, jumping out of my chest, and 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 that feeling where you don't want to. You can tell the the change in your voice. You know, I mean, everyone's pretty amped up. Um, to include one one particular episode where, um, tragically, the, the the Iraqi soldiers we were in charge of um, killed the wrong people, and uh, it, it hit all of us really hard when this happened. We were, uh, and Rocco, throughout all of this, was always um, not just a, a calm individual, but he became. He, he drew people to him and was able to uh, put everything in perspective. And um, uh, it, it was not just not just his ability to do that uh, in, in extremists, but also to deal with our counterparts, uh, the Rockies. Um, I, I spent uh, two tours as an advisor with, with the Iraqi soldiers, loved them, loved working with them. Uh, but, you know, like all... All cultures are different, and um, their, their culture and a lot of these guys, young guys who would who who would go on facing danger long after we left, and their families faced danger, um, and so their their view of the war wasn't quite the same as ours. It wasn't quite as gung ho. And Rocco, understandably, and Rocco understood all that intuitively and never got frustrated or upset uh, when when things went awry. Uh, yeah. That, that was the thing that struck me in your book compared to um, various other military leaders and special forces, uh, Navy SEALs and SAS officers and soldiers, that um, you did a, a, a really intense you know, series of periods of time where 
you were you and another buddy were SF advisors to a company or a battalion or a unit of Kurds who were fighting ISIS or whatever it might be. So they weren't your own uh, U.S. Marines or Special Forces guys that you could count on, that they weren't of the caliber that you'd been trained at, nor did they have any of the leadership training that you had. So it really struck me how well you manage that chaos and crisis. I think back, we had our 43rd platoon reunion just a couple of weeks ago where officers came back from Nepal, uh, Himalaya, my friend, he's a, a major general and uh, dealt with the earthquake there. He was in my platoon, Errol, who was back from Jamaica. Then we've got uh, General Anwar, who's advising the, the king, Jordan. He was his ADC. Um, and then there was Jeffrey Bostic. Uh, and then was Mr. Belengi from Zaire, uh, who just would be almost a liability, you know. And But he'd been a rebel and sort of hacked off the legs of uh, government troops to take their boots and run into the jungle and then unlace them and use them himself. Yeah. Things like this. That's a, that's a good phrase for the uh, resume, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah we've, we've lost him. We haven't tracked him down. I think he was garroted or something happened to him in Zaire. But but the, the point was that we often had to work with them, help them understand the way we did things without patronizing them, yeah. but building a friendship. And that's a friendship which has lasted 43 years. But one or two of my colleagues were very arrogant and, oh, these overseas you know, overseas uh, officers, they don't know what they're doing, really. And this superiority. But you and Rocco and others really seem to uh, treat them with great respect, even though at times, you know, people fired into sandbags next to you, which almost was aimed at you. And, oh, sorry, did my weapon go off? And uh, we we were one of the guys in our platoon sent a picture of uh, uh, it was tragic, but in typically military humor, you know, we all found it hum humorous. It was uh, in some country where it was someone's wedding and they're all firing AK-47s. And, and then the guy's dancing around and then he drops his AK-47, shoots the groom. Um, it was an accident. I'm not so sure. It doesn't look like an accident no. to me. It looks like dancing around and bang. Oh, 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 sorry. He's, he's dead. But but this sort of chaos that you have and and trying to take people to follow your orders and your instructions in a different language, really tough, um, which takes me on to the, the next question I have. The, the kind of the book is is so full of experiences, but I'm interested in experiences that have shaped your leadership as the the leader you are today and the leader you were during your time uh, and uh, what kind of just a, i don't know five ten minutes of some of the kind of things in your life you've talked already about the tragedy of kayla being killed you've got a story about your sister i think it's it's important to talk about but and and some of the uh, the injuries that you took from your time in the military that have shaped you as a leader today do you want to just share a bit of that yeah, absolutely. That's a uh, <laughs> that's a wide ranging question. Very good one, Jonathan. So I'd, yeah, I so I think you know what what I'll I'll do to begin with, and I'll do this briefly, not to uh, to to bore your audience, but uh, just hit some some points in my my career where I made mistakes. And by the way, I and I say this without any pretense, I could have been relieved of my uh, relief for cause let me put it that way um at every single rank I, I mean i i can think of mistakes that i made that that absolutely you know if discovered or if not forgiven um would have uh would have ended ended my career and so 
I, and I think that I'm probably not unusual. And I think all of us have to be aware of that, that we are in, in the position we are because of the forbearance of, of others. And then we've seen people come a cropper um, who are no no worse uh, leaders um, simply, I mean, just because of the vicissitudes of fate. Uh, but, but you know, some uh, just some some things that things that make me cringe, but but certainly jump to mind. Um, you know, when I was a uh, when I was a second lieutenant, I was given command of. This was before the long before the war. So actually, it was about a year before we went to Somalia. Uh, I, I was selected to command the eighty-one uh, millimeter mortar platoon, and and for us in the U.S. military and the Marines, that's a that that's a uh, that's a very choice assignment for lieutenant. And I was a junior second lieutenant. So it, it created some resentment, you can imagine, in the battalion. And it, and it was nothing to do with my abilities. It was simply because I had longevity. I would have longevity in the battalion. And uh, we'd had some uh, some bad incidents with the mortal platoon. So the battalion commander wanted someone in charge that he could put his finger on who would be there for a few years. Well, on, on the first shoot, the very first shoot, it was a big exercise we're firing live ammunition. We have new am- ammunition, uh, different series. And uh, I distinctly remember, you know, I'm sitting there in the uh, the FDC, and I, I distinctly remember, uh, you know, the, one of the, the guys on the plotting board back then, we used a, it sounds archaic, but a, a, a spin board to, to plot, mm-hmm. um, you know, the fall of the round. I remember when I'm saying, hey, sir, uh, 800 series, 600 series, uh, right? And I, you know, I'm like, yes, of course, you know, of course, my man, yes, absolutely. Of course, I didn't, I didn't know, and I was wrong, um, and it had almost had dire consequences. We dropped uh, an HE round, uh, high explosive, within 50 meters of the battalion COC. I mean, oh the no, yeah, wow. not not my finest hour, um, and I'll never forget. Uh, you know, hearing, listening on the net, the, like shrieks. Um, again, no one was used to being coming under mortar fire in those days, especially from from the road guys. And uh, and and across the net, everyone knew what had happened in the entire battalion. Um, and I heard this, and then just felt this sinking feeling when I realized what had happened. It was obviously we needed new, da- different um, gun, different books for the uh, eight hundred series ammo, and I hadn't. I'd answered simply for the sake of answering, being glib, and I almost had fatal consequences. And I learned another lesson to the battalion commander when everything had died down, got on the net and called me. And, uh, you know, again, everyone's listening. He said, uh, I'm on my way to your position now. (laughs) He wasn't there to congratulate. Um, And we walked out, and I just remember single platoon sergeant. I think you're going to have a platoon for a little bit. And he arrived and uh, he said, you know, let's go for a walk. And of course, all platoons pairing up. Uh, he said, tell me what happened. And I told him exactly what happened. I said, sir, I, 100% my fault. In fact, a kid in the FDC even asked me that question and I I gave him the wrong answer. And we, you know, it, it took an interminable period uh, before him to reply. And he just said, uh, okay go on firing um you go hard again in, in 30 minutes and uh he just walked off and and that was it wow, <laughs> yeah. wow. And i walked back and everyone's incredulous i'm still in command and you can imagine this really this really ramped up the uh uh the disgruntlement among the yeah. pastor 
lieutenants, you know, it's like, what has he got on the battalion commander? Uh, but I, I'll never forget that lease on life that he gave me. You know, if he'd finished my career there and then, I would, none of, none of the subsequent things would have happened. And he would have been right to do so. Hmm. Uh, right, number one. And then uh, I make... I make the dizzy heights of first lieutenant within a year. And as I talk about in the book, we were involved in the first shooting incident in Somalia. And I find myself under investigation. Uh, we, you know, and we reportedly killed three Somalis um, who, who uh, at least one witness said were not armed. Um, and I spent a very uncomfortable day not under arrest but certainly being investigated my platoon had all their weapons removed and then i out of uh, you know from stage left emerges this ep photographer uh, who has photographs of the whole thing shows that uh, these guys were uh followers of a deed they're a part of uh, yeah 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 uh, you know he was a bad bastard wasn't he well he subsequently became notorious for the black hawk noun you know the yeah, the yeah. She just a few months later, uh, but we were the first people to clash with ID. Um, in any case, the you know the photographs showed that that it was it, it was a good decision. Um, I had no other decision to make it uh, in in that particular circumstance, and I was I was liberated. Uh, but those twelve hours of um, second guessing myself were extremely uh, uncomfortable, and um, it, you know, afterwards, when I reflect back, I'm very glad that I went through that period. I'm glad that I, I belonged to an institution that investigated me based on what they, the evidence they had at the time. And I was the last one to say, yeah, I can't believe this is happening. Um, but at the same time, it really, it really was a a hard lesson in, when, in what before I just conceptually understood that, that my decisions uh, likely to uh, often, even as a, you know, a, a young lieutenant in this in his twenties, my mm. decision had life and death consequences, uh, and and I would I would be responsible, and I would have to answer for them um, mm. Mm. during subsequent you know wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It it kept me very firmly grounded that that knowledge that memory. Um, there were ethical reasons. I I hope you know I know within me to to always adhere to the law of armed conflict. Uh, but as you know, in counterinsurgency, uh, often there are there, there are contrary forces. You know, even among the best people, it's a very it, it becomes a very uh, things be, can become very dirty very quickly uh, unless you have leadership remaining grounded. And that experience grounded me. Yeah. Um, and and the last piece I have for you uh, because I I don't want to waffle on too long. But it, all of these occurred when I was a junior officer, but they were right. replicable shape or form throughout my career. The third piece has to do with culture and not combat, not even in an infantry unit. I uh, I report to the recruit depot as a, a senior first lieutenant after Somalia and uh, for the unexalted job of being what we call a series commander, which is you, you shepherd uh, a group of anything between 300 and 500 recruits uh, through their um their introduction to the Marine Corps, which is a 13-week uh, boot camp. Um, and you are, uh, your your role, it, it, I found it a difficult role to, to fill, not difficult, just I found it uh, uh, hard to be enthusiastic about coming from being a, you know, an infantry leader uh, in a, in an operational environment uh, to now simply kind of just being someone who monitored training because we didn't, we didn't come up with the training. It was all 
you know, long established and drill instructors ran it. We were there to make sure that the drill instructors um, did what they were supposed to do. Um, and, and I found that uh, at times uncomfortable uh, position. Bottom line is I, I fast forward um, a year or so, I, I was selected to command a company, but it was a company that had been through some pretty horrendous times. 11 drill instructors were pending court-martial, 11 wow. in a single. So 11 out of about 25 guys um, pending court-martial for serious offenses on, on recruits, uh, you know, assault, uh, stealing. I mean, things that would just shock you in any military to learn about your people. And um, to that, wait, but but that was only the face of the story. There was a deep seated culture in that in that company uh, that it was hard to shake loose, and the abuses continued amazingly, even with you know after I, I mean not amazingly after I took command, but even after these guys could see their colleagues uh, awaiting call martial, and it was because of that culture. And as company commander, I made the mistake of pursuing each incident and thinking, well, I'm going to make an example of this guy. But the guys getting caught were junior drill instructors. The guys responsible were the guys who controlled that culture. They were the senior drill instructors who wore a black belt um, appointed by the battalion commander and were very clever at covering their tracks, uh, but but would create the atmosphere for bullying uh, where bullying was encouraged and uh, and and. Their subordinates were the ones who carried it out in order to stay on the right side of culture because culture beats everything. You know that expression, um, culture eats something for Strat breakfast. Strategy. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Everything. You know, yeah. it's um, it, it respect for the chain of command. Uh, it, it, it eclipses everything that these guys had learned up to that point in their Marine careers, they had become, it's like Lord of the Flies scenario. They were abusing recruits and they were being abused themselves by the senior drill instructor. It's, uh, uh, and these guys, you know, not justifying anything, but you think about it, these guys are all, they're, they're just a few years on from being recruits themselves. Looking back, I mean, average age of my drill instructors must have been, I don't know, about 24. Right. Um, so anyway, uh, cut a long story short, the way I resolved it in the end violated everything that we learn about leadership. I issued a threat. I called in, I called in, you know, with my star major, called in the senior drill instructors, um, all eight of them, and uh, and I said, hey, I, the next thing that happens in any one of your platoons, I don't care if it's a recruit being late for breakfast, you guys are gonna you're gonna lose your black belt. Um, and that, that's it. Of course, I had the backing of the uh, battalion commander to say that. And you know what, Jonathan, not a single, not a single incident occurred after that until that point, uh, you know, it was almost daily catching drill instructors doing stupid stuff. Mm. And yet I violated, you know, and how did I do it? It was a threat. And, and, but I, of course I had every intention of carrying it through. It was not the positive leadership that we'd been taught to, to, um, employ while well, I went through officer training, uh, but it just shows that there are no real hard and fast rules, right? Um, I mean, it taught me all kinds of lessons, it taught me about culture, talks me about uh, fast forward in the special operations community um, in just a couple of years ago, and not just, I mean, not Marines, I mean, not just the Marines, all of us, all components in the special operations community here in the United States were going through some bad times, a lot of serious incidents across the force 
you know, everything from drinking in a combat zone um, to smuggling drugs. I mean, um, murder, you name it. And, um, and, and it, there was a lot of obviously gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair at, at among senior leadership to work out how to fix this. And based on my experiences in, in Recruit Depot, I wrote a, um, an article called How to, Bre- uh, how to Fix a Broken Special Operations Culture. And the bottom line was you figure out who controls that culture, um, both in, in, in the Recruit Depot and, fi- and, and in Special Operations Command, it tended to be senior NCOs. And Special Operations Command, it was essentially the team leaders, uh, you know, the, the team leaders, um, team chiefs, uh, not team leaders, I'm sorry, team chiefs. We team leaders tend to, in our terminology, tend to be officers. Team chiefs, um, the equivalent of platoon sergeants. It was the, that backbone of, of NCO leadership that was setting the conditions where um, blowing off steam, as one term uh, used you know, that phrase to me, hey, sir, the boys just need to blow off steam. Um, it became became kind of uh, the undercurrent. Hey, it's okay. You can do this stuff because you do such good, you know, such great things for your country. Um, you're an elite warrior. You've been through all this crap. You know, who cares if you try and cut it off? Uh, well, you know, when when you're not on patrol, um, deployed to a combat zone. And sure, you you should have the opportunity to make an extra bit of money on that gravel contract, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, God. Well, it's so interesting um, in uh, the SAS, one of the guys was talking about, again, the culture in the parachute regiment and the senior NCOs in the uh, the SAS, that, that there was uh, some bad apples in certain parts where they, they gripped the culture and it they ran it and it was their, their fiefdom. And and yep. some when they were bad, it went really bad, and and people were abused and and bullied or drank to excessive amounts, and, and good special forces guys, of course, make good criminals. If the criminal organisations can get hold of them, uh, both in America and UK, some of oh, those I- really talented guys have, have ended oh. up for the bad guys against the police, and that's a real problem, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, that's a great point too. There's a there's a the uh, <laughs> hope I won't get in trouble saying this, but yeah, I mean the a lot of the things that uh, the the traits that we select guys for for special operations forces um, will also make them good criminals. And yeah, uh, yeah. You, you name it: self reliance, um, the, the the physical, mental toughness, um, uh, the you know the ability to to operate under pressure. Blah blah blah. It's all it's all there. Uh, and so, so, and one thing that I've realized too, and we've realized among special operations forces leaders, uh, who are often junior officers, uh, who have just gone through selection, they have, they do, except for the SEALs, uh, with the exception of the SEALs in our military, they, they do have some experience outside special forces, but you know, as a junior officer, and now they're coming in and they're confronted with this team of guys who are legendary, you know, and there's, and, and there's such an ethos uh, within that team. And that ethos is not built by the team leader. It is built by the team chief, who's the senior staff and yeah. senior. doesn't matter, you know, that what that team leader really says, the, the members of that team look in, at least initially at the, at the team chief and, and that culture. Yeah. Um, 
So if it's a culture of laissez-faire, of letting people do stuff, then, then, then that team leader has a huge task on his hands. At the same time, when he's trying to get accepted, because you know the way we we operate in in special operations forces, you your team is it. Your team is your you know. Then it's not like you're part of a larger unit. You're often uh, geographically isolated um, with those guys. Your life depends on them. Separation from the tribe equals death. You know, mm-hmm. so you're being a junior leader to make this choice between alienating himself within that culture and and doing what he used to think was the right thing. But now, yeah, well, that's, that's where you get the My Lai incident in Vietnam and things like this, where people, they go rogue and uh, or they try and fit in. Um, hey, on, on My Lai, very quickly, Jonathan, very interesting, um, horrible, uh, horrible investigation to read. We had to as an officer when I went through uh, uh, school. But one very interesting aspect, you know, that platoon was by all accounts, by all measures, a good platoon. All right. So they had um, above uh, above uh, average high school number of high school graduates. Um, they had uh, uh, NCOs who'd won awards for leadership. They performed um, in the, you know, the top fifth of, of the battalion. Um, this is all, you know, documented mm-hmm. uh, work up. The one variable was the platoon commander, Kelly, who was yeah. an absolute. And that's what brought it down and caused a group of, you know, 40 otherwise very average, normal American young men uh, to to rape and murder, um, you know, 540 villagers. Oh, they uh, actually, I didn't realize they raped. Uh, I, I thought they just shot them all. Women as young as 10, girls as young as 10, are horrible. Uh, and, and, and there's an interesting aspect of that story too. A guy named um, uh, Chief Warren Officer Thompson flying overhead uh, sees what's happening. Um, and he lowers his Huey in between the Americans and, and the Vietnamese villages as they're, they're trying to flee. And he tells his door gunner, um, hey, when I give you the word open fire, and the door gunner's like, hey, boss, uh, all I've got in front of me is uh, Americans, you know, because he's out there. And and Thompson goes, exactly right. You, I give you the word, you shoot him. Um, and it became very, you know, he made it very obvious his intention. Um, so here's a guy in, I mean, it's difficult in combat, you know, you know, the smoke and all the other stuff, and, and you're flying in a helicopter to figure out what's going on. Amazing presence of mind and moral courage. Um, he was subsequently, you know, he was the main witness uh, subsequently when during the investigation, he was vilified, um, became a pariah and sadly died of cancer yeah. in his 40s. And only afterwards did the army acknowledge his his bravery. Meanwhile, Cali has, you know, people signing, millions of people signing petitions um saying that he should be uh pardoned and uh and uh, he becomes a hero there's a a song written about him that's in the charts it, it's extraordinary and this you know the, the the public often wants to side with our boys right right or wrong and that's not always the right thing to do wow. it, it's particularly painful for those of us in the military to see things like that happen wow hey look we need about four hours, you and I, to talk about some of these things. This is fascinating. You are you are one of the most interesting guys I've had on this podcast, and I've had some really interesting ones. Um, just very briefly, let's because we've only got about fifteen minutes left, and there's so much to cover. But just some quick fire thoughts: darkest moments in your life, and what you learned from it. 
I mean, you've got many. I've obviously Kayla was one of them, but but what else? Certainly. Well, uh, yeah, losing losing my daughter, um, and then I lost my sister. Um, actually, she lives lived in the UK, and and also I lost my sister to suicide um, back in 2020 during the the COVID epidemic. And I only mention that because I think isolation probably had played a hand in that. Um, so sorry. Um, definitely those, um, those two, you know, you never get over that. You never get over the loss of a child. And, um, I was particularly close to my sister and suicide, as you know, leaves in its wake, just this horrible kind of welter of guilt among everyone who's known the person who's taken their life. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, I mean, I, I sadly, we, I, probably everyone on uh, who, who's been in the military, who's been on your show knows too many people who have taken their own life and you just can't, you can't piece through it. But in in any case, both those incidents, I think left me on a, um, after I got out of the military transitioned. And so I no longer had that kind of support structure. Um, I think it left me on a downward trajectory. Mm. And and also you, um, during your time, you got bombed, blown up. You went into rooms where grenades were going off. And that uh, had an impact on your brain, didn't it, with all the explosions? and uh, Certainly. So the uh, traumatic brain injury, um, it, it, is a, it is certainly a, a thing that affects your personality thereafter to some extent. And you've got to be on the guard for it, on guard for it. And, um, you know, PTS does too. There's, there are a lot of crossover symptoms. Just very quickly, I and I don't certainly don't mean to speak uh, talk down to your audience because uh, traumatic brain injury gets a lot of coverage now. But uh, you know, I never, I didn't, I was never wounded in the head. Um, but like many others, was subjected to. I was in vehicles being that were hit by IEDs, and there's um, there, there's a a phenomenon that occurs called coup contra, contra coup. You know, with your brain being propelled one way very fast within your skull and then backwards. And, and of course it causes um, over, over several repetitions um, injury. And then coupled with that, Fallujah, uh, fighting inside grenades, breaching charges, all of this has a concussive effect and, um, and it's left, you know, there's, so this physical damage uh, to your brain that can, you can, you can see, um, but there's also, of course, the psychological piece. And, uh, and I had a boss who told me, and he subsequently became Commandant of the Marine Corps. Um, he said, look, Andy, no one, no one uh, who's a decent human being uh, survives combat without being changed. And, um, and, I, and I remember that he's, he's absolutely right. And that's an interesting qualifier. No one who is a decent human being, because there are those definitely, uh, I don't know, I don't want to hazard a guess as the percentage who love combat have absolutely no fear of death and have very little compunction about killing. And those guys um, within very limited parameters make, make good soldiers, but they, uh, they, they, they require a great deal of management and supervision and oversight. Exactly. And, and uh, with all that experience you've had, Somalia, Fallujah, you were in Libya, the bidding story in Libya, when no US troops had to be on the ground, but that the only way to get these people out was an ambassador or some um, 
member of an embassy had to be there to lead them from the airport to the plane. And, and they all chickened out because it was getting really airy and people were getting killed everywhere. And there was guys riding around in pickup trucks, firing rounds everywhere. And you went in as a Brit American um, pretending to be a member of the British uh, embassy, if I seem to remember, and always going well and t- until you almost got captured and beheaded, but managed to get out because the pilot was very courageous. That's a whole part of the story people got to listen to. But, you know, you were on the ground in Libya, the only American who was and got out. Um, you know, you've had some incredible experiences. And looking back with all those different experiences you've had, Mogadishu, Fallujah, everywhere, um, and, and different parts of Afghanistan and Iraq. What bit of advice would you give to the young Andy Milburn that you meet just before he goes off to Paris Island and decides he's going to be, having done uh, law um, and studied law and been at school in, uh, in uh, St. Paul's, I think was it? Um, what bit of advice would you give yourself? This matters and this doesn't. What would the advice be, Andy? First bit of advice, perhaps, would be don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I I would say, uh, I would say, enjoy the journey. All right. And it's, you know, so I don't, I mean, we've talked about leadership advice and all of that. um, But I think, I I think looking back, um, I didn't always, I, I didn't always uh, focus on just kind of being in to use kind of new age terms in the moment. You know, the I mean, I the, I had such extraordinary, uh, such great experiences and worked with such uh, terrific people. Um, but too often, I, I think my mind was was focused. Not, and this wasn't just a naked ambition, but it was, you know, you always it, it, it was just on the next steps, not next steps in my career, but um I was never, I could never just be relaxed or happy with what was happening in that moment. Um, And I should have been. Mm. And I think that's probably the, and and oddly enough, I'll tell you, Jonathan, is the only time that I can say I was uh, really in the moment was was perhaps during the most intense combat uh, that I was involved in, in the Battle of Fallujah, um, where... It, it was, you know, as you pointed out, as you mentioned earlier, I, I was an advisor to an Iraqi company and there was only two of us as advisors. And so what that meant is one of us had to go through the door every single time, one of us two. And our odds of uh, our, our odds at the time of, of coming out of that unscathed seemed quite small. And, and strangely enough, that um, started as a kind of absolute fear uh, every single day. Um, resolved itself into uh, resignation uh, and then just not exactly enjoyment, but just being in the moment every time and and noticing things and relishing certainly the the relationship that, that we had among ourselves and with mm-hmm. our uh, protégés. Yeah. And, and I, I do think, I mean, having been through life-threatening moments all the time, um, it, it's uh it's amazing that you've come out, uh, albeit you've had a lot of impact on you of your service, but you've come out the lovely guy that you are that I'm talking to today who's written a book of your story. How are you doing for time, Andy? I'm good. Uh, I can go right up to, you know, 8.58. Okay, that's great. Well, look, we've got some really good stuff. So this one's going to be a bit longer than the others. 
Um, moral question. I, I just want to take you around our Inspiring Leadership Compass, which from our research, my wife and I, there's so many models and you've been trained on thousands of different ones. But we just find this is quite useful about high-performing leaders, both in business and in the military. Uh, moral question is a, a clear one that's come out, you know, the values and doing the right thing. And we've talked a lot about guys who, who've been right at the, um, the psychopath end of doing the wrong thing. What did you learn from one example, just a short story, of, of when you let your values slip and how did you get yourself back? Because I know I've done and let things slip and I've been appalled by it, embarrassed about not a- absolutely acting with integrity and doing the right thing. Yeah, that's a, um, gosh, <laughs> I, I'm, um, give me a second. So I think, uh, I think, uh, again, it, it gets back to, um, gets back to Fallujah. And it's a it's a brush with kind of my darker side uh, that that has stayed with me, and it, and it's a moment where I really understood atrocities and and uh, you know the things that that I've been talking about. We we should desperately try and avoid. And it, it was a moment in Fallujah. I talk about it in my book. Uh, I was caught. Bottom line is uh, I I was caught in crossfire in the middle of the street. Um, three Marines were killed in. The, in this incident, they were they were gunned down in front of me as they were waiting to go into a building, and uh, I threw myself down. And then, it, you know, the Marines on one side, and uh, what we called the Mooj, you know, the enemy on the other, uh, essentially just firing at each other. I poked my head, and I'm desperately trying to bury myself in in the ground. And and of course, you know, not a, not a not a hundred percent compass mentis. Um, and and after a period that seemed interminable, the, you know the firing dies down, and I I run to run to cover behind a Humvee, and a few moments later uh, I see coming around the corner uh, three prisoners, and they're they're uh, they they're bound, they're wearing dish dashes, um, they look they they are the three they're the three guys who hold up in this building, they're the three they're the guys who just killed these Marines in front of me, um, and were involved in a subsequent firefight, and um, the Marine. Um, platoon commander, great presence of mind, had sent a squad around the back of the house. They'd gone in and they they called these guys red-handed. Now, realizing all of that, and I'm just kind of getting my, my faculties together, I just felt a burning hot anger. Um, I wanted those men dead. You know, I wanted, I absolutely wanted them dead. Um, I didn't act on it, of course. Uh, but I, re- I remember that. And, and what brought you? What brought you back from the edge of that 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 red mist? Leadership of a subordinate guy. So, um, while I'm watching this, is I uh, remember, never forget this: a red-headed marine um, just kind of runs towards him, and he's he's a friend. He he'd been like the fourth guy in the stack. He'd seen his three buddies killed in front of him, and he runs towards these guys, clearly intent on on you know hitting them. He's not armed, um, and a uh, staff sergeant just you know steps steps up grabs him and and pushes him back to get his name you know jackson he goes no jackson you know that's that's not he just said that's not what we do jackson that just very simple phrase that's not what we do and i yeah. thought yeah that's right that's not what we do you know and subsequently I, I thought of that phrase and i used to not use that one but i used to tell people i used to tell my marines you know there there are 
there are incidents throughout it when you're, when you're fighting a counterinsurgency when you have to pull your guys together. I remember after one case where we're taking casualties, pulling a company together and saying, hey, guys, we fight. We fight with the values that we represent. We don't adopt those of our enemy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if you do, then every reason for being here dissipates and every single one of our friends that we have seen killed was for nothing. Yeah. Um, Which comes on nicely to my next question on the second question, uh, uh, purpose, meaning and purpose. Why have you done what you've done, Andy? Why, why did you serve as you did? And and why do you do what the work you do now and the writing and the books and things like that? What, what's if, if there was a, an essence? Because other people are thinking I don't have a life of meaning and purpose, but Andy seems to do. What what gave your life meaning and purpose? Well, I think it's it's actually a harder question to answer than one might think. Because when you you know ostensibly you might think, well, you served your country and you did this and that, but there wasn't always a clearly defined purpose for us wearing uniform. And I'm sure in the British army, it is the same. Sometimes you find yourself fighting in a, in a conflict um, when you, you can see no political solution to that conflict and no, um, and, and you don't see any direction towards a, a resolution or political solution. Iraq and Afghanistan, sadly, sadly, Afghanistan being a great example are prominent. So you, you've got this, you, you've got this kind of this tension between the responsibility you have towards your subordinates and, and all of, you know, any leader in the military will tell you, you become very attached to genuinely attached to the people who, whom you're leading. And, uh, and that's one of the hardest things about being, about being a leader in combat is that genuine emotional attachment and, and the, the drive to accomplish the mission. And sometimes the, the mission versus the men is not an easy choice to make. We're always taught the mission comes first, but when that mission seems to wallow in, in lack of direction or even seems misdirected, um, it, it's, it, it's hard to not kind of just say, okay, well, I'm going to protect my guys. Um, that, uh, but, but the way I derive purpose uh, throughout my career uh, was in the end, you you do benefit. You If you're leading, you do benefit those around you and beneath you, uh, regardless of whether the overarching mission makes sense to you. Uh, you're giving mission to, you're giving, uh, your, your, your role is to give meaning to their lives, all right? And um, without, without uh, violating your integrity, meaning to what you're doing mm. and, and Finding that sense of purpose, and um, uh, the the other part is what kept me in the military uh, was the 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 narrower sense of purpose. You know, not defending the nation; it, it, it was looking after those around you, but also selfish reasons, uh, the camaraderie uh, that you know. I've never. I've come close, but I've never really seen again since leaving the military. That, and you know this. Jonathan, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you, smelling what I mean, it's almost so self-evidently true. It sounds cliche, but you're never going to have colleagues who depend on you for their life and vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, and that transcends everything. You know, it, it transcends, as we've learned, it transcends gender, sexual preference, ethnic origin, color. Every, everything comes down to, can I trust this guy or, or woman? 
um, with my life? And if the answer is yes, nothing else matters. Yeah, no, it, it is very special. And, and I think those listening who are leading businesses or small teams uh, in business, it's, you know, can you get people to willingly follow you and to trust you? Are you worthy of their trust? And you've got to trust other people first to be worthy of that. It's a a fascinating area. When we were having our uh, warm-up chat a few days ago, you just come in from a run looking mighty fit. And um, what age are you now, Andy? What's that? Where am I? What age are you now? 16. My God. I mean, you've just been on the most marathon run. So this is a good question because I'm only a couple of years older than you. Uh, What is it you do to keep, this is health question, the third one, to keep physically fit? We've talked about some of the mental challenges that you have to cope with, particularly when people with traumatic brain injury can have irritability, flashes of anger, and your personality it can change sudden explosions of of anger and don't know where it comes from that that is a whole story in itself but just thinking about your physical at 60 your physical fitness and your ability to ling, live a long healthy life thinking after you've abused your body as much as you have and pushed it to the limits of special forces training what's your what's your top tip on fitness for for others yeah, at your age that's a great question so first i'll preface this by saying um, just a year ago, I was following none of these, none of these habits. And, uh, you know, I was in Ukraine, um, running an organization that was training Ukrainian soldiers close to the front, because that was a kind of a, a critical gap and evacuating civilians from frontline under bombardment. And I was living a very unhealthy life, not enough sleep, um, certainly drinking too much and constantly under stress, not just from threat from the Russians, but as you know, we had, uh, you know, internal divisions within the, the Mozart group that eventually caused us to implode, trying to hold that together, raise um, donor funding, uh, et cetera, and, and run an organization made of former military guys who had rocked up in a combat zone. You know, they're not, they, this isn't like, uh, you know, Miss, Mrs. Moffat's third grade uh, class. The, these guys are, um, I mean, we, we we filtered it. We brought in good guys, but they they're rough around the edges, and you don't have the backing of the Uniform Code of Military Justice or rank uh, to keep everyone in line. So that was a very very stressful year. And at the end of it, Jonathan, I I felt physically depleted. I was in a dreadful state. I think physically, I was not in a good place uh, mentally, um, and realized I had to to really. Uh, get back and and so the last seven months has been a journey and i'm getting enough sleep that is number one i mean you've probably had other guests comment but sleep is so incredibly important and it's paradox isn't it throughout our time in the military we're told that you know anything beyond four hours is a luxury and it's it's for dreaming and uh, a waste of time and um and so we learned you know that's part of kind of part it's certainly in the u.s military certainly in the marines part of our ethos you know, I, I went three, you know, three nights without sleep during this particular exercise or operation. And actually, you make yourself dangerous, absolutely dangerous. You make yourself the equivalent of drunk, making decisions upon which. Uh, anyway, so now I, I, I wake up with uh, not with the alarm unless I have to for a podcast or something. But um, I just, you know, I, I, I sleep uh, my kind of natural. Uh, let's see, take its natural course. Exercise huge i i I exercise now um 
I, I'm not a, I've never been a good runner. I'll, I'll drag myself out for a run a couple of times a week, but most of it's uh, kind of CrossFit type stuff, mm-hmm. rowing, um, which I find just tremendously therapeutic. So that was um, that row, rowing. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, you know one of the concept to rowing yeah, machine. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I swim. All of that as part of the routine daily. Um, if I don't, I, I you know I do feel a, a little bit of a, a loss. Um, reading used to be a love of mine. I, I didn't read enough um, during my career, and now I've gone back to forcing myself to read, setting time every day. As strange though that may seem, um, meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very unmarine thing to do. But uh, did you know that uh, if you like people who meditate regularly, actually shrink the size of their amygdala, and uh, that's that's not they that's not uh, just kind of psychoscience. That's actually true, and nothing else does even ex- regular exercise. So you're actually shrinking that part of your brain that that it causes you to release cortisol and stress and all those other things freeze flight fight yeah yeah tremendously hard to do especially for someone like me with extreme adhd um but it but persevering and and um using you know using various apps um i find setting aside time to do that is is tremendous and the last piece as trite though it may sound don't underestimate social interaction, the mm-hmm. value of interaction. I, um, I've been living kind of a hermit existence the last three months. And then last night, uh, went out to a, to a pub with, um, uh, with friends or colleagues and, uh, just driving home, you know, I just, I, I felt my mood was so elevated and I realized mm. that's critical, isn't it? Just being yeah. able to. Yeah. Yeah. it's it's a key it's a key part of it eat move sleep breathe focus prosper but community is a is a key one um fascinating and of course i i haven't uh and it wasn't mentioned in your book but i haven't really uh highlighted just the incredible toughness of the job you did with setting up the mozart group and uh the the way the russians tried to undermine and run that down and close it down because of uh the danger posed to them by the way you helped the ukrainians so thank you for for what you did there and and, uh, the difference you made to all the civilians you saved um eq is the next one uh, emotional intelligence um of course in the military we tend to be rather teased as we're not terribly good at that we just sort of grunt and we run in there and you know run straight to the wall that kind of stuff but but it's clear that you had to develop high levels of eq throughout your service to survive, uh, to lead, particularly people of other nations and other cultures, uh, and to work out what's going on. But at the same time, you often had to dampen down your emotional intelligence not to feel things because it was so difficult at the time, whether it be death of somebody else or injuries or what goes on. But on EQ, listening, how do you how have you learned to listen well? Because you're a good you're a good listener. How have you learned to do that? It for me it it really took conscious effort and uh, anyone who's who's knows me who's been with me for a period of time knows that I'm a, a very um enth- you know I I enthusiastic in conversations which means sometimes I tend to have done and it cut people off and a dreadful habit um, consciously consciously just really focusing on what people are saying and what it means not 
oh, what I'm going to say in return. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not a habit that that came easily, but uh, I do think I've, I, I don't want to say developed, that sounds cynical, but it, it is a valuable trait to cultivate. Let me put it that way. Yeah. We talked about self-reflection too. And I, I want to um, just mention two, you know, empathy is center stage in emotional intelligence traits and it's very important as a leader but to your point about when do you um when do you have to kind of tamp down your your feelings of empathy um the hardest among the hardest decisions a leader makes is when you have to fire someone right you have to relieve them um it is a in in the military certainly very strongly in the marines um we tend to everyone tends to you, you tend to identify yourself with your job, right? Because it's all consuming. And, uh, and so your utility, your worth uh, um, often is, and I'm not saying this is the right way to look at it, but it becomes synonymous with your performance, for instance, as a Marine officer. So if you're being fired, uh, that really is a, it's kind of a, it's a fundamental part of you being removed. Mm. And so being able to, first of all, decide when to do that, you know, when do the needs of the institution outweigh the the feelings of the individual, or, or more importantly, the needs of the institution are such that force you to fire him because you don't you don't have enough time, or he lacks the capability or will to improve. Um, that, that's that's a really hard decision, and then breaking the news is a really hard decision without destroying someone, but at the same time being very direct. And and those times, you know, I I, I felt myself inside just screaming for this person mm. um mm. that is, is difficult yeah no thanks andy andy we we our time's come to an end um but before we do that um finally your the book you recommend and then we'll give the two minute top tip with an introduction from yourself what's the book you'd recommend on leadership that people should read uh yeah actually it's uh it is a military book uh shame on me for like showing lack of imagination but it's an unusual one i think it's called courted safe out here yeah by old fraser it's uh it's his story of being a, a young rifleman in uh the 14th army in the closing days of the war uh and it is it is brilliantly written those of you read george mcdonald fraser most you know a lot of people have read the uh, flashman series yeah. um but there's a I think a better series, the McCausland series, um, that he also uh, wrote, and he's uh, that is hands down the funniest series of books about military life. But "Caught It Safe Out Here" is the best military autobiography, and there are so many lessons uh, in in that book, and uh, just viewed from the perspective of being someone at the bottom of the of the pyramid. Mm. one of my favorite books actually um quarters safe out here by george mcdonald fraser and uh, i'm going to look at the mccausland series because i read most of the flashman but i haven't read those um so andy would you introduce yourself um just in a little thumbnail of a couple of minutes uh say who you are uh what you did uh if you can just fly through a few of the places you've served uh including uh the ukraine and and then what your practical top leadership tip is for the audience Absolutely, yeah. So my name's Andy Milburn. I'm a retired, I hate to use that term, transitioned uh, Marine officer. Background in the infantry and and special operations, uh, multiple deployments uh, from uh, from Somalia all the way through to the counter-ISIS campaign in Iraq. And then uh, a a, a short 
uh, post uh, post military career as the leader of um, a, uh, I suppose a private military company in Ukraine uh, focused on training Ukrainian soldiers and evacuating civilians from the from the front line, and um, none of that has made me. Um, it, uh, qualified as an expert when it comes to leadership, but you know if you, you're going to narrow it down to one trait, I would say it's absolutely self-reflection. Jonathan, we talked about this: the ability to take stock uh, regularly, continuously of, uh, of of your actions, of your decisions, of how subordinates uh, might be perceiving you, without paralysis. You know, you can't constantly be wringing your hands and, and backtracking, oh, I shouldn't have done this or that, but owning the decisions you've made, um, understanding where they've gone awry, why they've gone awry, um, and and beginning with yourself when you are doing an analysis of uh, what has gone wrong um, and, 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 and making a determined exit effort to fix that. Those are, that sounds very simple, but actually in practice, very difficult. And, okay. um, and and the mark of uh, honestly, it's what separates a leader, a, a leader who's going to continue to grow and develop, uh, from someone who is capped out, as we say, who's never going to get beyond their current mindset. Yeah, fantastic, Andy. It's been a real pleasure having you on the Inspiring Leadership um, program. Um, you have some great stories to tell, and that's why I deliberately went a little longer in this one because it was an absolute gem. And I recommend people do read your book. It's a, it's a great read. And thanks again for all that you've done for so many people in so many countries. And good luck in the meantime. Take care, Andy, and thank you. Jonathan, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.